that you promised me to come and speak about. So I want to tell you this little little thing that just happened that we'll be reminded of you. So how about if we open your scriptures this morning and remind of what is going on in the back, that we will be encouraged, exhorted, challenged, and that we will think uh, biblically, we will think correctly, Amen. So we are in Acts chapter 11 this morning. Acts chapter 11. We're going to start obviously in verse 1, and we are going to spend our time going through verse 18. Now, if you read ahead at all, you know that for the most part, if not completely, the text we're looking at this morning in Acts chapter 11 is very strongly connected to the previous passage. Not only is it strongly connected to the previous passage, it seems like that it's just a repetition of the previous passage. Ken shaking his head over here. A repetition of the previous passage. And if you detected that, you'd be right. I almost decided to skip over the text and move on later into Acts chapter 11. Because we emphasized the text last week pretty strongly. What went on in Acts chapter 10. Just by reminder, we have the first real outreach to the who? What group of people? Gentiles. The Gentiles. And the reason why the outreach to the Gentiles took place, it all started out, if you remember, by what happening first? A vision. The vision that Peter had of the sheet that came down from heaven with all of what on it? Unclean all different types of animals, right? Clean and unclean animals. And God tells Peter to eat, and Peter says, I won't do it because he's referencing the Jewish law. He says, because of the Jewish law, I can't eat I've never eaten that, and I can't eat it because those things are... Unclean or common, same term, means the same thing. And God responds by saying what? Don't call clean what I call clean. Don't call unclean what I call clean, or don't call unclean what I call common, right? It says both of those. Well, what we find in today's text is the same thing. It's Peter reiterates the same story. Now, there's a subtle difference in that there is a conflict going on, right? But the emphasis is exactly what we saw before last week. And so this week, the reason why I decided to spend time on verses 1 through 18, even though we covered it pretty extensively in the previous chapter, is because of this. There's a really important lesson before we even get into the text this morning. There's a really important lesson for us to get here. And it's several fold, and I'll be on it real quickly before we read the text. And that is, sometimes in the scriptures you will find God reiterating the same things. And sometimes he even really reiterates them close to each other. He oftentimes will reiterate it here and there and somewhere else, right? Like you read the epistles and you see a lot of the same reoccurring themes, don't you? Different settings, but you're seeing a lot of reoccurring themes. God is re-emphasizing things or re-pointing out things. In this case, in Acts chapter 10 and then the beginning of Acts chapter 11, he reiterates what he just described, what God used Luke to describe in the previous chapter. He reiterates it immediately again, at length. 
In fact, in one point, he adds a little bit more to it. But it's basically just a reiteration. So why camp on it? We already heard it. Why camp on it? Well, here's the reason why. Whenever God reiterates something, why do you think he does that? When he repeats it, why do you think he does that? Because it's important. And he wants you to remember it. And so he, he makes the point over and over again. It's kind of like, if you remember, in Isaiah chapter 6, there's a, a triplicate repetition. Holy, holy, holy. You could have just said it once, right? And after one time you get it, right? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He could have just said, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He could have, correct? But he didn't. And there's a reason why he didn't. And the reason why he didn't is because, again, on one level he doesn't want you to forget. And do people have a tendency to forget his holiness? Yeah, all the time. But more than just that he doesn't want you to forget, it is also an emphasis on the importance of his holiness. It's just not that he's holy. It is, he's in, very, in a very real way, in, in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6 saying, God's holiness is the front and center, or to put it a different way, God's holiness is the interpreter of everything that is going to pour out of Isaiah's ministry. You want to understand Isaiah's ministry in the book of Isaiah? Start with and remain in this statement. In other words, if we're going to, I'm not preaching on Isaiah this morning, but I wanted to make the point. In other words, if you really want to understand Isaiah's uh, message and his ministry, you got to start with his holiness because it's only in God's holiness and understanding of his utter and absolute holiness that we will result in having an understanding by the Holy Spirit that we are absolutely what? Unholy. Just as Isaiah said about God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The very real implication and purposeful implication is unholy, unholy, unholy are the people of Israel. That's the point. But you can only grapple with that when you understand the reality and the nuance and everything else of the holiness of God. Because you will discover as a result of understanding this that you stand in absolute contrast to that. Does that make sense? So when you see God making or taking time to emphasize something again repetitively, it's a time to pause and say, not just is there anything new here, which is what we want to do, right? Is there anything new that we can learn from this text that we didn't learn before? That may or may not be the case. Oftentimes it's not. But instead, it ought to cause us to stop and say, what did I not really understand? What did I really not grapple with? What does God really want me to understand here? He obviously stated it at length in Acts chapter 10. He's obviously restating it at length, isn't he? It's 18 verses. It's almost all repetition. What in the world is he trying to get across that I must not miss? It's obviously very important to him. 
And that's what we want to see this morning. Because of that, we're probably not going to spend a lot of time on the text, but we're going to just emphasize what he emphasizes. It's going to be a reminder from last week. As Peter said, I believe it was in 2 Peter, I know you know these things. I just wanted to remind you. And that's exactly what God's doing here through Luke. So let's read the text, and then we will spend our time in the text, and we're just going to highlight a few things, and we'll be off of it. We'll join together in song again, and then we're going to move on. I know I've said many times before, I'll try not to be long. This one I really don't think will be that long, but that's okay. Rusty's already laughing. <laughs> Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained to them in order, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheep descending, being led down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing uncommon, nothing common, I'm sorry, or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened, verse 10, three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, in which we were, and sent me, and sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinctions or distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, "Send." to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. I just want to stop for just a second and point out, we've come to our first distinction from the previous chapter. I just want to point it out because I'm not going to spend any time on it when we look through the text again. And that is, in the first time through, this person is identified, isn't he? Who is it? Chapter 10, Cornelius. <clears throat> Peter, on the other hand, in this case, speaking to the Jews, does not identify Cornelius. He just says what? The man's house. He doesn't mention his name. Doesn't describe who he is. That was important verse in chapter chapter ten. But in chapter eleven, the, the the point is not. The, he's a centurion. He's Italian or anything. It's just a generic, right? It's just a generic what? He's a Gentile, right? That's the point. And so Peter takes the distractions away. It's a Gentile. Verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak. Oh, let me stop. Verse 14. There's another distinction. I just want to point them out to you. Another distinction from chapter 10. He expands, in other words, in, in chapter 11, verse 14. By saying, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. That part wasn't in chapter 10. Peter expands it because now he's speaking to Jewish Christians, right? And, and the point, the whole point of the text is that Gentiles can be 
saved. Okay, verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on, on us in the beginning, at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's now we get into some more nuance that wasn't in for, uh, chapter uh, 10 for a very specific purpose that we'll see in a few seconds. Um, who was I? I'm going to read that verse 17 again. If uh, I'm sorry, um, verse 16. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the disciples also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's our text this morning. Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, you recognize is speaking to, we already mentioned it, Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians, right? So he has come back and he's now with Jewish Christians. Um, and the word had gotten out, you see already in verse 1, the word had gotten out throughout Judea, right? The Gentiles had also received the word of God. Verse 2. Up to this point in time, it's basically been Jews. But throughout Judea, Judea is where the persecuted Jewish Christians are now, right? They have been driven out of Jerusalem. They're for the most part in Judea. Some are in Samaria. Um, but he's, he's, he's referencing specifically Judea is heard, has heard that the Gentiles um, have received the word of God also. So Peter shows up where? Jerusalem. Peter shows up in Jerusalem, verse 2, and obviously if it got to Judea, it's also getting to Jerusalem as well. And he gets together with the, with the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and you'll notice in verse 2, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. That circumcision party is not referring to the lost Jews who are worshiping Yahweh according to the Old Testament. The, 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 the term used, circumcision party, here is referring to Jewish believers. Okay? And you'll notice that this circumcision party, this group of uncircumcised or circumcised believers, it says criticize him. That is, they openly speak to Peter against what he has done. And what is the target they focus on? More specifically, eating with them. His tar their target on him is, verse 3, you went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. Nothing wrong with going to and talking to uncircumcised men. Okay? And nothing wrong with it. it happened all the time. In the market it would happen. It would happen everywhere. But the issue was that he went and ate with them. They are unclean, and he, being clean, ate with ones who were unclean, correct? Which would make him, according to the Old Testament law, unclean. Now, what I find this really interesting, by the way. If I may just pause it, just, just real brief, real brief aside. Rather than criticizing him, if they were going to be consistent with the law, what should they have done? No, they shouldn't have been with him. Because by being with them, they become unclean. What they should have done is they should have said, no, 
go and be ceremoniously cleansed. It's like a seven-day process. And then we can hang out with you. But they didn't. They go and criticize him. So I would argue some theologians disagree with this and commentators disagree. I, I think the word criticize here means they're pretty upset. They're fired up. He ate with unclean people. Now, I love what Peter does. Verse 4, Peter begins to explain to them what happened, right? In order. I'm not going to read through it all. We just read it. He tells them the story of chapter 10, correct? He tells them the story of chapter 10. And they, what? Don't go to the end. In the middle, during, during his telling, they what? It doesn't say it in the text. You just got to think a little bit. They what? It's really important. This is important. While he's telling it, they're what? They're listening. This isn't rocket science. As he's telling the story, they're, or maybe I should say this isn't computer programming. They're listening. They're listening to Peter. They're listening to what he's describing. They're listening to his story. That's going to be important, I think, in a little bit. And so he continues his story. And he comes to verse 13. And he says to them, And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. I love Peter. He's still just as bold, isn't he? Does he love that? Except now his boldness is, is focused where? On the truth. Isn't it? I mean, Peter's always been bold. There's no question. Stupid bold at times. Wasn't he? You know, people, people often, I hear people often, they say, you know, people cut on Peter, but you got to remember something about Peter. At least he was bold. At least he spoke. No, we need to separate Peter pre-Acts 1.8 and Peter post-Acts 1.8. Don't we? There is a marked difference between Peter pre-1-8 and Peter post-1-8. Peter pre-1-8 doesn't get it, does he? He starts getting it at the end of Matthew when he's anointed with the Spirit as he's saved, finally. It starts a little bit. I emphasize a little bit. Everything changes in Acts 1-8, doesn't it? Because once Acts 1-8 happens, he has received the Spirit with power. And the promises of God are true, correct, always, and amen, right? And he promised that when he receives power, everything's going to change. To sum it all up. And so if you look at Acts 1-8 pre, in contrast to Acts 1-8 post, you see a totally different Peter. Because pre... Sure, Peter's bold, no question. Drawn, almost inevitably. But the only time he's not wrong is when? When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Right? And he says, you are what? The Christ, the son of the living God. And what does Jesus say next to him? Yes, he says, flesh and blood has not told you this, but heaven has, basically. The Holy Spirit has. 
And you think, yes, Peter, you got it. Woo! No, Jesus, you don't have to die. Oh! Right? Even that one brief little glimmer. He misses it. Because if that was really inculcated into his heart, that would not have been the response. Correct? That would not have been the response. Post 1.8, you see Peter being really bold, don't you? But now the boldness is what? Every time the, the boldness of Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, of, of Peter is centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't it? Every time. The boldness is upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what you see here. That's exactly what you see. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Just keep that in your thoughts as we continue our process of working through the text. Verse 15, Peter says, As I began to speak, and notice he doesn't say what he said, does he? But even the most brief reading of the book of Acts, you know what he said. If you don't look at verse 9, or chapter 10, right? If you don't look at chapter 10, you have to know what he said, don't you? I mean, have we not seen a theme? Acts 2, Acts 4, and it goes on, doesn't it? Have we not seen the same theme? Every time Peter's speaking, what is he speaking about? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't he? Every single time it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says here in chapter 11, verse 15, as I began to speak, add in, because it's appropriate, the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happened? He tells these Jewish believers, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning. What is he saying? Do you remember, Jewish believers, what happened Acts chapter 2? Do you remember? Do you remember the stupendous change that took place? Do you remember the, the wholesale change in direction of our very lives? Do you remember the evidence of the Holy Spirit falling on us? And of course, these Jewish believers have to say, Oh yeah, it wasn't that long ago. We absolutely remember. Remember what we were before. Remember what we are now. We remember watching the Spirit move in you. And then what happened to these Jewish believers? He's speaking to that are still in Jerusalem. It happened to us as well. Right? These Jewish believers would have to say yes. Because he didn't say only... I want you to notice, he's speaking to these Jewish believers, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on, what? Us. He didn't say me, did he? He said us, just as on us in the beginning. So he folds them all into it and says, do you remember what happened to me? Do you remember what happened to you? Do you remember when the Spirit fell on you? Remember how you changed? Remember the ramifications? Do you remember the results? And of course they would have to say, yes. And Peter says, that same thing happened to them. That same, to say it more specifically, that same spirit 
can't find that as well. That, or to say it a different way, that same spirit transformed them as well. And to say it a little bit more nuanced, that same spirit changed them in exactly the same way. Or to say it one different way, that same spirit changed them just as completely. That make sense? That's exactly what he's saying. And then verse 16, here's that other addition that we mentioned, but we didn't really talk about. Verse 16, and I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is not Peter doing the arguing, is he? Peter is talking about, not about his wisdom, not about his knowledge, not about his effectiveness, but he said, I remember, first of all, the same spirit fell on them. I saw it, it was evident, it was clearly evident. This could not be conjured up. And by the way, can I just say this real quick? You know why it cannot be conjured up? Because by nature, we are haters of the things of God. Is that not correct? Inevitably, can I just throw this out here? Inevitably, I find this to be the case, and it troubles me. I see it all the time that there are people who claim to be believers. They claim to be followers of God. But really quickly, what I see in the people oftentimes that say that is so quickly, I hear such crazy things coming out of their mouths. First, crazy things. They're not biblical things, they're not even close. They're bizarre things that are either twisted the scriptures or they're just a lot of whole lot of nice, pithy human wisdom. It's not scriptures. Not the truth that's proclaimed in the scriptures. And then what I start to notice right away, and it grows more and more because it's inevitable, is that their lives real quickly start showing something. What do you think it shows? It doesn't show the power of the Holy Spirit at work in their lives. It doesn't show, it doesn't demonstrate transformation. It doesn't demonstrate people being enthralled with the God of their, of their souls. Does it? Now, what happens is, what you start to see is a continuation of, if I'm going to use the term, God being a part, maybe, part of their lives. Typically a pretty insignificant part. Some part. And they talk about it. But it's not what we see in the scriptures. See, I go back to the scriptures again and again and again, and I'll say, wait, I need my life to be examined in light of the mirror of God's word. Not what I think a Christian is. Not what the world thinks a Christian is. Not what is commonly thought of as a Christian. No, what does God say? In other words, what does God say a life looks like when the Spirit comes upon them in power? What does it look like? What, does, what are the ramifications? What do they look like? How do people respond to the truth? How enthralled are the people 
who claim to be believers with the Christ who supposedly redeemed them? These are important questions, aren't they? They were important to Peter, weren't they? <laughs> I want you to notice, there's nowhere in this text that Peter says, I preached the gospel to them. I'm going to meddle now a little bit. I preached the gospel to them, and they raised a hand, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer. Woohoo! Do you see that there? Does it show up anywhere in there? Is it hinted at? Is it? No, what does Peter do? Peter goes to the biblical concept. What does he do? He says, listen, as I preached, the Spirit came upon them with power and it evidenced itself, and I remembered what? What Jesus said. I remembered what Jesus said when he said, I have John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's an important statement by, by Peter, isn't it? What is Peter saying? It's something we've been saying all along, isn't it? That when the Spirit comes upon us with power, and it does with salvation, at salvation, something, and that's a really bad term, something happens. Right? Do you remember what we said all the way back when we were studying the Gospels? When you come in contact with Jesus, you will come away from either hating him or loving him. Right? And, and we talked about it when we were in the, in studying the Gospels. That love is not what we see too often in Christianity. Is it? That love is not at all the love that is described by a lot of people who claim to be believers and talk about, yes, they love Jesus. Because for, for Jesus in the, in, the, in the Gospels, his point was, just as much as they hate, at the same degree they will love. If you wonder what that looks like, all you got to do is again go to Isaiah 53, right? Despised, rejected, went my own way, right? Turn those around. What are the opposite of those? What are the, what are the diametric opposites, the, the polar opposites of those three statements? I just chose three. Love, accepted. Despised would be what? Polar opposite would be, you can use any number of terms, but I want to avoid love because we so corrupt the word, right? Despised, absolutely hated, to absolutely enthralled, <coughs> consumed. No means, right? Went their own way, went his way. Correct? Go his way. And you go all the way through the chapter. And just flip the opposites, and you got a great picture of what it means when the Spirit falls in someone's power. There it is. <clears throat> Here, he says, John said, or I'm sorry, Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you will be, future tense, at that point in time, 
baptized with the Holy Spirit. And, and all that statement from Jesus conjures up what it already past tense looked like for these Jews. Correct? Doesn't mean they're perfect, because obviously they're missing, at this point in time, these Jews are missing what? The issue of the Gentiles. Correct? They're missing the issue of the Gentiles at this point. So it doesn't mean they're perfect. Peter messed up too, didn't he? Chapter 10. But the transformation is there. Being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 17. If then God gave the same gifts to them as he gives to us, as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Can I read that one again? If then God gave the same gifts to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's an amazing statement. I mean, do you hear? Can you absolutely hear pride dying? Can you hear it there? I mean, it's dramatic. Now, I'm going to get back to that one in just a second, but do you hear that? Peter says, listen, I was struggling with this. Isn't that what he's saying? Chapter 10, I was struggling with it. God said, go without distinction. I went without distinction. Even though he was struggling with it, it showed in chapter 10 what? And here in chapter 11, that he what? Submitted and obeyed God, right? Because he's enthralled with God. Because the Spirit is on him with power, right? And so even though he's like, ah, and they're Gentiles, God said, go without distinction. And he what? He went without distinction. And he preached to them. He didn't compromise the gospel. He didn't, he didn't water it down. He didn't try to adapt it or adjust it. He did what? He spoke the truth. And the Spirit fell upon him. They were saved, gloriously saved. And he remembers John the Baptist, baptized with water. Jesus sang it. But they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There they are, being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Once again, God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God, isn't he? And they are gloriously saved. And he's his only response. There's only one possible response that he could possibly have and be faithful to God and worship and glorify and be enthralled with Jesus Christ is to say what? Who am I to stand in the way of what God's going to do? Right? Now, I've heard people look at this text and say that about everything. All sorts of crazy things. Well, but look at what, you can't deny they had this experience or that experience or, 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 or done this or done that. It's like, well, no, 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 that's not the point of this text. The point of this text is tied directly to the promises and descriptions of what God was going to do, isn't it? It cannot be applied everywhere, blanketly. Peter's looking at this and saying, Jesus said this, this is what's happening, therefore. Right? Not the crazy stuff that so many people do. And I hear it all the time when people say, say well, so-and-so. I say, well, no, I don't think that's right. Well, you can't deny, you know, who are you standing the way of what God's doing? Well, wait a sec, God didn't say he'd do that. Or whatever it is. You can't do that. Peter is saying this tightly woven into the fabric of God's word. Does that make sense? You cannot rip it out of the fabric without doing damage to the entirety of the text. 
of the scriptures. Who is I to stand in God's way? Verse 18. When they, the Jewish Christians, heard these things, they what? They fell silent. We're going to talk about that in just a second. They fell silent and glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. To life. A couple things. When the Holy Spirit falls on people with power, there's what? There's evidence, right? It demonstrates itself really, really clearly. The Jewish Christians have the Spirit. The Spirit has fallen upon him with power. Peter has the Holy Spirit. He's fallen on him with power, right? It's clear in the Scriptures in both cases. Peter has a problem with the Gentiles. And God says, don't call him clean what I call clean. And Peter, what? Peter's life is amended, isn't it? Isn't it? Now, please, I'm using my words very carefully. I did not say Peter amended his life. Did you hear me? I did not say that, which is what a lot of people will say. I want to cling tightly to the scriptures. It doesn't say any way, or doesn't imply in any way, Peter amended his thinking, does it? Why? It's not Peter. It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is amending, changing his thinking. Because that's what the Spirit does. Right? He amends his thinking. He changes his shift in his thinking. It shifts 180 degrees out of phase with where it was. By the power of the Holy Spirit. And he goes without distinction. And then as he preaches, they are gloriously saved. The Spirit is evident. And his immediate response is what again? To remember what God says. Remember what Jesus said. And so then he comes back and he tells them. And what's their response? Verse 18 again. When they heard these things, they firstly what? They fell silent. When I first read this in my study, it stunned me. It really did. That statement stunned me. It, they fell silent. Let me just test you. When was the last time that you met someone who claimed to be a believer and you challenged their thinking about something and you brought the scriptures to bear? Okay? You brought the scriptures to bear. When was the last time that you ever did that and the people you're speaking to fell silent? Can I just submit this to you? That just about never happens to me. I just about never have seen that. Just about never. You know what happens? Here's what happens. You've heard me talk about it before, but here's what happens. I'll go and I'll, I'll, I'll be talking to somebody. We'll be talking, just having a great time. And they'll throw this bombshell out in the middle of the room. About something. Something. 
something they really believe in. And I'll hear it, and my mind just starts racing right away to the scriptures. Because I'm like, ah, that's not right. I know that's not right. That's not even close to being right. And so I will bring the scriptures into the conversation. Well, what do you think about this passage? How does this passage work with what you just said? Or this passage? Or this passage? Or this passage? And often I'll present like seven or eight or ten passages to them. That are all consistently saying the same exact thing. And you know what happens almost every time? I get one of two responses almost every time. And the two responses are, one of the two is this. It's either, well, I think, or even worse, it's, well, I feel, we weren't talking about emotions. I don't know why you're bringing emotions into the thing. I feel, or I think, and, and I listen to what they say, and I say, well, I appreciate what you think, or I appreciate what you feel, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this is what God says. God says this, and he says this, and he says this, and he says this. And it's all consistent with this. And you said this. And I want to know, what does God say about it? I don't, I don't mean to be offensive, but I don't care what you think about the topic. I want to know what God says. In other words, what am I asking them? What's your source of truth? What's your authority? Where did you get that from? And they go back to it again. Well, I think, blah, 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 and they're talking about their experiences. They're talking about their own belief structure they've created. I'm like, I hear what you're saying, but God says this, and you're not showing me where I'm wrong. If I'm wrong in the scriptures, please help me. If I'm thinking badly in the scriptures here, I want to change. But if I'm not thinking badly in the scriptures, it, I, I've told people, it worries me. It terrifies me that your first response is to who? What source of authority are you declaring? Yourself. Isn't that what they're declaring? Well, I think. Well, I feel. You're just declaring yourself as the authority. How can you be a follower of God and do that? Right? How can you do that? And it happens all the time. I love this picture, friends. I love this picture that Peter gets up and he says, and he's not, I mean, you read this. It's not hard to understand, is it, what Peter talks to him about? I mean, he basically just tells him a story, doesn't he? It's not like he's using some really deep Grecian um, philosophy. Right? Or Aristotelian philosophy and logic. Is he? No, he's just saying, this is what happened, this is what God said. And they agree. Which means it must be the Lord. Does that make sense? It's pretty simple. And their response is what? Their first response is what again? They fell silent. Why? Why? You know why? Because the Spirit was on them with power. That's why. Not because they're such good people. 
No, they're desperately wicked like everyone else. But the Spirit was on them with power. And when the Spirit was on them with power, what did the Spirit do? He opened their eyes. Didn't he? Just like he did with Peter in the beginning of chapter 10, he did the same exact thing with these Jewish believers in chapter 11. Which, by the way, tells us this is the way it works. Doesn't it? And we don't just see it in these two chapters. We see it all over the place. They believe, Peter believes this. The Spirit says this. Peter is what? This. These Jewish believers believe this. And they're actively criticizing Peter. Peter tells the story. The Holy Spirit is at work in their lives. And they grow silent. Because why? Well, we don't know yet. But we find out in just a second. Because the Spirit has amended their life. The Spirit has amended their thinking. Because what's the next response that these people have? Verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell, what? Silent. And immediately thereafter it says, and they what? Glorified God. The result was not an argument with Peter, was there? Is that what happened? No. Does it describe that there was an 18-hour convention where they argued with Peter until Peter finally argued them under the table and boxed them out of every single perspective they possibly and every single argument they possibly could have, and then finally. They grew silent and glorified God. You know what happened? No. He just tells them a story. <laughs> it's a pretty short story. It's recorded there. It's in quotes in our English. And he brought the scripture into it and they grew silent. And the result was they rejoiced in the Lord. And there's a, there's a change, isn't there? What does it say next? They, re, they glorified God Saying, and by the way, when it says they glorified God, it means they made much of God, right? They made absolutely as much of God as they could possibly do by saying what? Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. <clears throat> well, if, by the way, if that's not a picture of repentance in a believer's life, I don't know what is. But the implication of the text, by the way it's written, is pretty clear. They hear the story, they hear the scripture, they grow silent, and then they glorify God by saying, then absolutely this is the case. And their perspective changes towards the Gentile believers. You know what this text is about? It's not about clean and unclean animals. It's not about um, Jews and Gentiles. Although that's certainly part of it. You know it's really about? Luke is giving a picture here. And it's up to this point in time one of the clearest pictures of what it looks like in an individual's life and an individual's corporate when the Spirit falls upon him with power. Not just, I mean, up to this point in time, we have seen what? The Spirit falls on people with power and gospel's preached. The Spirit falls upon people with power and they get together with other people that the Spirit has fallen on with power and they study the scriptures and they pray together and they break bread together and they fellowship together, right? 
But here we see this in chapter 10 and chapter 11, we see this, this other component that when the Spirit falls on people with power and they hear the truth of God's word, what happens? They change. <clears throat> they change. The Spirit amends their thinking and as a result amends their lives, their responses. And they find themselves rejoicing at this point in time, regarding the Gentiles, and in a little bit we'll see rejoicing and glorifying God with the Gentiles. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. What is Luke trying to get across to us? He's trying to get across to us this so important of a reality that when the Spirit of God moves in people, they change. When the Spirit of God falls on people of power, their perspective, to the very core of their thinking, begins to change. And the implication, by the way, one of the implications that I didn't even mention in the text is this. When the Spirit falls upon us with power, one of the biggest things that changes is the Word of God, our perspective on the Word of God. Our perspective on the value of the Scriptures. And the authority of the Scriptures and the person that is revealed, the people, the persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who are revealed in the Scriptures. Too often I see believers, people who claim to be believers anyway, their lives aren't being amended by the Spirit. They're not being silenced by the Word of God. Spirit using the Word of God. They're not glorifying God. They're not rejoicing in God. The perspective is not your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we talked about before. And yet, too often they still claim what? To somehow be saved. To somehow be believers. And I look at that and I've said it for years. <clears throat> I would like to see, I, again, I'm more than willing to change my view on the scripture, my view on this, if, I can be, if it can be shown from the scriptures. But I don't see any evidence of someone being a saved person and yet their lives aren't amended by the Spirit, aren't transformed by the Spirit. I mean, quite to the contrary, friends, I'm going to close on this one. Quite to the contrary, I look at Matthew chapter 7, I believe it is, where Jesus says there are going to be many that day who will say, Lord, Lord, and they'll say, depart from I never knew you. And they say, they will say what? Wait a second, we did all these things in your name. i got to be honest with you, I find too many people who claim to be believers aren't even doing stuff for it when they're claiming to be believers. Their hearts aren't even caught up to do. I find there's too many people who claim to be believers, but they never tell anybody about Jesus. Whether they're other believers or not, they're not speaking truth into each other's lives for believers. For non-believers, they're never telling non-believers about Jesus. At least these people in Jesus, in Jesus' statement there, are what? Are doing. Right? They do it for all the wrong reasons and it condemns them. But how much worse? That we would claim to be believers 
And we're not even moved to do anything. But the Spirit tells us when He comes upon when He comes upon us with power, will what? Acts 1 8. Will what? Be witnesses, right? That's what it says. And yet somehow we, we, we continue on with this comfort, false comfort. Somehow we're going to go. But the point of this passage, 18 verses, is this what happens when scared from the public people in power? Nothing new. We've seen in scriptures in the last 11 chapters, last 10 chapters. God wants us, though, to ask ourselves some really important questions. Is he upon me with power? See, I'm convinced there are too many people who are believers. We just finished Hebrews a while ago. People claim to be believers, but all they're doing is, in Hebrews chapter 6, they're tasting and seeing, right? I mean, they're tasting of the good things. They're enjoying the benefits, but they're really not Christ followers. They have cold hearts. They're seeking the perks without the relationship. It's devastating. <clears throat> Absolutely devastating. What we're talking about here today, friends, is it's basic. But it is the stuff of Christianity. It is. And I can tell you this. I'm convinced in the scriptures there's going to come a day if we're playing the game there's going to come a day when the charade will be over, when the veneer will be pulled away, and the truth will be exposed. And the truth will be exposed. And what is it? The truth of whether the Spirit is on us with power or not. And if he was while we were alive, that will be exposed. I don't care what kind of talk we talk. Don't care. When the Spirit comes upon us with power, it does change everything. It is undeniable in the Scriptures. And the Christian Church has for too long ignored this truth. And it must be proclaimed. And yet, the good news is, when the Spirit comes on us with power... When the gospel of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, his paying the penalty for sin, his conquering sin and Satan and death is applied to our lives, we go from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. And that being alive in Christ is, again, 180 degrees different from being dead in our sins. And that's what the Spirit does in our lives. Let us pray and ask that, that the Spirit will be at work as he has promised to do in our lives. And let us seek him while he may be found. Let us drink deeply at the fountain of living water. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. These are things that we cannot do. These people in Peter's day could not have possibly grown silent and then glorified God. What had just happened was absolutely opposed to everything they knew. Everything. 
and everything they understood and everything they possibly could comprehend and yet your spirit changed them we ask you that you'll change us so that we will be people that glory in you love you are enthralled with you our king our redeemer our Messiah. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.